Hey, everyone. I am so happy to have my childhood friend and fellow Washingtonian Joel McHale back on the show. You know Joel from The Soup, Community, Card Sharks, and as the host of The Tiger King and I. I've known Joel since I was 16 years old. It really goes by in a blink. After talking with Joel, I'm joined again by Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who is a psychologist, author, science writer, and host of The Psychology Podcast, which is the number one psychology podcast in the world. Scott has taught cognitive psychology at Columbia University, NYU, and the University of Pennsylvania. His writing and research focuses on intelligence, creativity, and human potential. If you have a question for Scott or one of our other experts, please reach out and tell us your story. Go to unqualified.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And now here he is, Joel McHale. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Look at this. <gasps> what? Mm. You have an Anna Ferris podcast mug? Yeah, I, I was going to write Unqualified, but then you could sue me. <laughs> I was actually hoping that you could deliver an impromptu monologue. Yeah. Take us back to March. Well, I'll take you back to March when the whole thing broke out and everyone was like, is this really happening? Is this all these things going? Is everything shutting down? Is no one going to movies? No one's going into a restaurant. And my kid's birthday was supposed to be that week. Party was canceled. Then he stopped going to school. And then he graduated from that sixth grade. So he never went back to class. And Anna, as you know, Zoom school is the best. It's how kids should learn. Now, I'm not saying like, we need to get back there in them schools and get those kids interacting and breathing on each other. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I'm dyslexic and ADHD. So if someone said to me as a kid, just sit in front of a computer for six hours, you might as well each day someone hands you a phone and go, hey, you're on hold with customer service uh, for the next six hours, but they might chime in at some point. So, but can you just stay on this thing the whole time. That's that's how I kind of see it. I'm not upset about that anyway. I know there's so many other issues we can talk about. So that's March. Everything's weird. March seems like 10 years ago. So then let's skip past April. April was okay. super confusing. As Americans, it felt like, do we have a sense of ingenuity? Can we survive? I was saving bacon grease. So I could cure my cast iron pans or if I needed it in a pinch when you need bacon grease. You in full Laura Ingalls Wilder. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was saving everything. Did you keep your groceries outside for weird reasons? Oh, yeah. I stopped doing that because I was just like, well, I just didn't seem like I'm going to get this from a piece of toast. Yes, there are a thousand other ways to get it. Believe me, I'm not being that guy. I think every time there's a crowd, it proves that people are catching it. Uh, you know that I'm not a big complimenter, yeah. especially to my own friends I and didn't family. know that, actually, but I could have suspected it, given our history. Yes, but I feel like you're a witch or some sort of vampire because you're not aging. No. Oh, my God. No, I'm engaged to a DP. Oh, That is so fucking smart. Thanks. That is the smartest thing I've ever heard. It's like, well, how do you have such a nice house? Oh, I I married a (laughs) interior designer. 
follow-up is that you don't look like you're trying. You know, like there are people that try hard and it is also reflected in their hairstyle and in their clothing where you're like, oh, you still think you're going to go to one of those pool parties after partying in Las Vegas, you know, the Caesars Palace where you start the party at 10 a.m. and you're all in bathing. We know people who are older that are still like grasping for that thing. I don't go like, hey, everything you do is great. You look great and everything's great. I'm saying it disturbs me. (laughs) So how are you at accepting compliments? I'm not good at accepting compliments because I feel like there's an ulterior motive. Even my own wife is like, hey, yeah, you look good today. I'm like, what's going on? I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And then it becomes a Scooby-Doo mystery. Uh, But I'll take that because, as you know, we live in Hollywood, so we um, can't stop exercising and uh, moisturizing. So, you know, stay out of the sun. You know, you always ask a question, especially to a kindred spirit, which I believe you are. Go Seahawks. (laughs) So there's a lot to unpack, as the phrase goes. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had a sense of, anxiety that would not go away. And you know that when you get like this level of anxiety, it begins to zap your energy. And so what I do in those situations where it's like, I want to work out and I don't feel like moving. And then I force myself to do it. And it feels very unsatisfying and like I'm doing it through mud. And so I had anxiety and I was very worried for my family. But then I always go, But there's essential workers out there and there are people in hospitals and nurses and doctors and the people that keep those places going that are like, "Uh uh-huh, you got a little anxiety? Okay, well, I'm just going to go innovate this guy. I'll be right back. You know, so that's how I go, like, calm down. Oh, completely. I'm just sitting at home while other people are out there solving shit. You know, do I even have a right to be anxious? Yeah, I think also the federal response has been none, which is just good luck. I don't care what party you're from, but the response was basically to get on a group call with all the governors and go, well, come up with your own plan. And when I hear people say, well, we're a really big country. And I was like, so is South Korea. They're not as big as us, but they are in a much more concentrated. There's 51 million people in like the size of Delaware. They have contact traced and gotten the virus to down to an incredibly manageable level. So I think the... Anxiety continues because the jailbreak dumpster fire of zillions of cases every day is very disconcerting and worrisome, to say the least, to the point where we don't even know how worried we are. Thank you. I'm Joel McHale. Uh, Joel, back in early April, we bought a used camper van. Mm -hmm. But traveling back and forth... We encountered people, like, at gas stations. A guy told us to take our fucking masks off. Nice. Great. America. This country is divided like it's never been before in our lifetimes. Oh, yeah. And again, I don't want to get all political, but when the leader of the free world and of your country dismisses them, people follow that example. So here we are. In the face of science, I I used to interview this guy from Fred Hutch. He is the leading researcher for COVID there. And he's like, I remember him telling me way back in June, he said, if we just put on masks for like two weeks, if everybody did that, I mean, it would be very manageable. But 
that's not the case and won't be the case. And that's why God bless those Dodgers for winning the World Series. But when Justin Turner is a positive test mid-game and then comes out and celebrates without a mask and touches people like Clayton Kershaw who have children, it's that sort of lack of vigilance for stuff like that. I have a good friend in Melbourne who was going nuts because they were locked down for 110 days. And he was really angry at the government. And then they're down to one case. One case. So now, does he feel grateful for a solid, trustworthy government leadership? I think he thought they were very austere. I think he was more angry about how the, the psychological devastation and the the economic devastation, I think for a while he was like, it's too much. And now I think he changed his mind because he went, oh, now we have a way to proceed, which is we can contact trace very quickly. You can't contact trace at 100,000 cases a day. It's just so overwhelming. Right. And we are 4% of the population of the planet, and we have 25% of the cases, which is totally upside down. And it's like runaway American pride, which I love my country so much. I love it. I love living here. I think it's great. But when people say it's my right to blank and ignore very obvious science. I mean, from Dr. Fauci, who at a rally, people that are saying fire Fauci, fire Fauci is like, there has to be a practical side to uh, American pride and come together as a family and go, let's take care of each other by wearing a fucking mask. So anyway, that was another long diatribe of mine. Um, no, no, I agree. Okay, let's talk Tiger King. Oh. So back in early April, you did a Tiger King special, The Tiger King and I. How did that come about? Well, Ted Sarandos, who is a very nice man, uh, he called and asked if I would do it. And I was like, yeah, I'll freaking do that. I had nothing else to do with it. He just plopped it in my lap. And I was like, absolutely. Well, it was a fucking rad bonding moment for the entire country. The whole journey of the Tiger King. We needed the intensity. We needed the absurdity. We needed all of it at that time. But who would you play in a Tiger King movie? My guess is I would be Jeff. What's his name with the do-rag and the uh, nanny, the young pregnant wife? I mean, that's who I would assume I would be cast as. I don't think so. Who? Uh, well. Who would you think? I mean, for age-wise, I fit the demo. Mm. I don't know. I would like to be maybe Carol Baskin's husband, you know, the alive one. I mean, that guy is really something. He's wonderful. Yeah. I was going to cast myself as Carol Baskin's niece, oh. Tanya. Oh. I don't know if she has a niece named Tanya, but I'm going to be Tanya Baskins. And Joel, you're working hard on the script, right? Uh, very hard on the script right now. Great. I'm stuck on page 78. Ah, well, that's where Tanya comes in once again. She's amazing. Oh, Tanya was pretty much raised by Carol. Really? Yeah. Where was Tanya... During the time when a certain prominent person who had purchased the entire reserve disappeared. Oh, yeah. Well, that's easy. Perhaps on planned trips to Costa Rica? Yeah. He loves the tropics. He loves monkeys, um, coconuts. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to go, like, do that. Okay. But anyway, he is awesome and he's doing great. And more importantly, Carol's doing great. Tanya, I'm going to need to interview you more because I'm writing this screenplay. So I got to ask you a few questions. Yeah, sure. No problem. 
Um, how old are you, Tanya? May I ask? Yeah, no, I'm 26. Okay, and so Tanya, you're very close to Carol? Yeah, Aunt Carol is like my mom, basically. Did you go to the wedding to her most recent husband? Yeah, I was her bride niece. Did you put the collar around your future uncle's neck and then gave Carol the leash? Well, it wasn't exactly a leash, but yeah, I put like the wedding collar around and I think it's so romantic. Mm. Don't you? Oh, I thought it was some of, they, they were some of the most remarkable photographs. They're literally attached. They're literally attached? Yes. I mean, one is on a leash and, you know, doesn't have a choice. Right. Well, I guess my question is, were you there when your first uncle uh, disappeared? Yeah. He always loved to fly. Right. But then five years, because in Florida, someone is declared dead if they haven't heard from them in five years, then you can claim that person's possessions. And so five years and one day. I have to tell you, I feel like your questions are getting a little intense. My Aunt Carol is the most loving, generous, like kind, intelligent person I know. Would she ever kill anybody only in self-defense? Right. The good point. Um, or if maybe she accidentally left, you know, like the door of a cage to a, you know, a very powerful big cat open. <laughs> Don't you think it's weird how no one, I mean, with the success of this show, no one has heard from him at all in Costa Rica? You'd think he'd be spotted, right? I'm sure there's a very reasonable explanation. It seems just weird because of like, even if Anna, if I was like, you know what? I, Joel McHale, I'm going off the grid. I'm moving to Argentina. And unless I barricaded myself in a cave where somehow I had sustainable food and no one could find me, I could pull that off, maybe. But don't you think a person that needs to buy food, have a place, he's going to need money since he get, he doesn't have any. Someone would just kind of like, oh, hey, you're the guy from the thing. <laughs> maybe. All right. So... If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Mm, For a year. For a year. Get this. I'm going to blow your mind right now. All right. I would want to live on a boat. All right. I'm sure I would die at sea and my family would be like, what the hell are we doing out here? But I would, hopefully I somehow had Tiger Woods' boat or something or LeBron's boat. I don't know. And then I would be like, all right. We're going to cross the Atlantic and we're going to stop in Algeria. You know, I would like to do that. So a pretty big boat. Large enough that it's not the movie Dead Calm with uh, Nicole Kidman and and Sam Neill. So, yeah, I would like to be at sea for a year. I think that would be pretty great. Why aren't you doing this? This is a rad plan. Well, it's a really good question because we know a couple people they just went to Big Bear indefinitely. And they're just like, we're just going to be here. They're going to do Zoom school from there. I'm like, maybe I should be doing that. Did you grow up with a boat? Yeah, you were on Mercer Island. Yeah, we had we didn't have waterfront, but we, we always had something moored somewhere. And then my friends all had boats. Um, and we did a lot of irresponsible things on those. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we used to take my friend David Johnson's boat and it went it went 75 miles an hour. We called it high-speed bailouts, and we'd jump off the boat. David Johnson. David Johnson, who saved my life. How? Well, I was skiing up a crystal mountain. 
Yeah. And um, we were skiing together. He was a good skier. And there was a poof of snow. He looked over. I had somehow collided with another skier. I don't have any memory of this at all. He said, I stood up and he stood up. And I said, are you okay? And the guy said, yeah. And he goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And then I skied up to Dave and I'm like, let's keep going. And then he said, I started talking very strangely on the chairlift, like gibberish. Like, he was terrified because I had been hit in the head and not knocked out, but I had fractured my skull. So, holy shit, uh, Joel. Yeah. So I have no memory of the day other than. Like, I have no memory of waking up, getting ready, being on the bus to go skiing. I don't have any recollection of that at all. But one of my recollections is that it was a very cloudy day and it was bright and sunny. I was told later. They were like, it was one of the nicest days of skiing. And I was just like, I feel like it was very cloudy and I was in a tunnel. And so he took me to the infirmary. But if I had been alone, this is where you hear about like a soldier, like getting shell shock like blown up or like hitting them and just wandering away from the battlefield or wandering straight into the battlefield i would have just skied off into the hinterland the day is gone so like going to someone's car to be taken home would be just out of the question i would have just like i'm gonna sleep here under these beautiful trees and then just never woken up from exposure so they got me in there and then they figured out that i had been hit in the head I drove home and I'd lost, I didn't drive home, but I lost all my short-term memory for like six hours. So I kept going like, who put this glass in my hand? What's going on? Like that was me for hours. So David Johnson led me down the hill. So I would have a different guest today if it weren't for David Johnson. Yeah, very nice guy. Uh, I saw him once, I saw him at the reunion and I said, thank you again for not leaving me. That's amazing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I wanted to ask you, how did you feel after Community ended? It had been, what, um, six seasons? Here's what I'll say about Community. As Dan Harmon said, our time slot was always Vietnam. And we always felt like this underdog all the time because we were a lot of the time. We were always in that eight o'clock slot going up against the Big Bang Theory and Thursday night football. But we loved each other. And then we started losing castmates, you know, like Chevy and Yvette and Donald, they left and we lost Dan. We lost, we lost the show creator. So then Dan came back. So we were rejuvenated. And then we got canceled in the fifth season. And then we got picked up by Yahoo, which then we made, as Dan has said, he's like, I think that's one of the best seasons of television. He was like, it's my favorite season. He has said that. But then Yahoo, after that stopped, Yahoo streaming service stopped. And then they blamed us and Paul Feig's show for bringing down the streaming service. And then Yahoo was sold to T-Mobile. So 
it was always a roller coaster. And that last episode, as my character leaves, I'm just looking at the study table. I'll start crying again. But uh, I was like, guys, you better get this quick because I'm just going to weep. I'm just going to not be able to handle this. And uh, oh, I'm, I'm crying right now. But uh, because I cared so deeply and it was such a shit show, not shit show, but it was so like fighting for the show all the time because I knew we knew we were making something really good and different and we loved it. So that said, I think Dan would agree like that was the run uh, of the show and that's that. And I even though the hours were bananas, I missed it. And you did feel like, oh, what am I going to do now? I think every actor, unless they are, I don't know who that person is. I'm always going, what am I going to do next? What's going to happen? And my wife always points out, she goes, you know, when you constantly talk about you're worried that you're never going to work again, all you do is work. And I'm like, oh, right. So you guys did something very unique, which is, you know how hard it is to get a show on the air, just to get the pilot, then to get the show on the air, then to get out of your first season, then to get in your second season, and all of a sudden, it's working. And you go on these runs, and all of a sudden, you make 100 episodes, then you get to 150 episodes. And you look at Ted Danson and be like, well, Cheers could have just kept going forever, and you would have made this much money. And he was just like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do a zillion other things because variety in life is really important. Of course, I miss mom and everyone there. Oh, the cast, the writing, Chuck is so brilliant. Walking away from that show with what you've accomplished to go do another thing or just take a fucking break and raise your child. Great. Just like anything, you get used to it. Mm -hmm. But you know, when Donald left Community, we were all upset and we were like, people, a lot of people were like, what is he doing? He's on a show that's working, he's getting paid. And he he knew, like he just was like, it wasn't worth it to him. And you know, like he had the vision of Atlanta and he had his, the music career was going. And I'm like, I mean, the guy is obviously now, he's, he's Donald Glover, but he had the vision. And if that little tickle happens in your heart. Thanks, Joel. I've, you know, I've had, um, I've had a lot of complicated feelings about it. I was also really worried about COVID, you know, and of course I still am. Oh yeah, it's fun. Okay. Changing the subject. Tell me your juiciest audition story. Well, I will tell you, Danny Pudi has the greatest audition story of all time. Do you feel qualified? Yeah, uh, Danny, I'm going to tell the story okay. because it's, so he was auditioning for like a play in New York and he was on community at that point. And it was like this pretty high end play. It was a, it was going to be a good thing. And the, the woman who was directing, it was like, well, we want to put you on camera. And it wasn't putting yourself on tape. She wanted to do basically a zoom call. Now this is 2011 and this is pre zoom being a thing. And most of us had blackberries at that point. So she's like, well, do you have a, like an Apple laptop? Cause that's what I have. And you can do this FaceTime thing on the laptop. And he's like, no, I don't. And then she's like, well, can, can you get one? And he's like, no. So he went to the Grove at the Apple store and opens up a computer. And that guy's like, can I help you? And he's like, um, I'm going to do this audition right there here in the Apple store. Amazing. At the and Grove. He, at the Grove. He's already on TV at this point. So 
he's recognizable. So there's Danny Pudi in the Grove. Like, and he's like, and it wasn't just kind of like a, like a, like a straight dialogue. There was like stuff to do in it. And he fucking got the role. What? <laughs> yeah, he got it. He was like, uh, so good. <laughs> okay, but wait, Joel, do you have any memorable auditions? Oh, yeah, I had one. Well, it's a Saturday Night Live model of auditioning, which is like, have three characters ready. Show us those three characters. And a lot of other shows adapted that. There was a zillion sketch comedy shows that failed. This one, I think, was for Comedy Central. And they're like, come up with three characters. And you went, for whatever reason, the casting director was in an office building. And usually casting directors are in these weird bodegas. And, but it's really like, I'm thinking the elevator to the 30th. Anyway, there's a long bench where all the actors were waiting. And there was the casting director's office, which was a glass wall. Oh, no. So you opened a glass door to walk into their office and you sit down. Behind you are all the actors. The glass wall separating them. And she's like, okay. And... All these actors are just watching you it, while well, you're doing like a silent movie with your back to them. That is so weird, though. I'm trying to imagine this. Well, I'll tell you, when I auditioned for Community, because uh, I was on the soup at that point, it was the Russo brothers and Dan, and I know they really liked what I did in the tests. And at that point, they were like, okay, you don't have to do the studio test because the studio's already approved you. So you go to this network test. Again, for those of you listening... There's all these very odd hoops that you have to jump through. And I don't even know those that exist anymore with like Netflix and stuff like how oh, that's changed. But you go into an, a literally someone's office, literally. And I think she's still at NBC. 20 other executives pack into this room. What you don't realize, you're like, this is the biggest moment of my life. And for other people, they're like, uh, I got two more network tests to show up to uh, by lunch. So I got to watch this bozo jump around. If we knew that, though, wouldn't that have been of comfort? Yes, but I don't know how much I could have convinced myself. I know, uh, yeah. But I think the other thing we all don't factor in as actors, we put the pressure on ourselves to go like, I need to get this. And if I screw this up, everything is my fault. When you don't realize like, oh, the casting director wants someone, this executive wants someone else, you might just be a prop. You might just be brought in there as the setup man. And there's so many other cooks in the kitchen that you could give the greatest audition of your life. And you're like, thank you. We already made a decision three days ago. So uh, that happens all the time. No, we're like the tile that a contractor brings. Like, well, yeah, this one's good, strong, but okay. Yeah, but you're right. The other one, oh, this one with the blue is way better. Right. Oh, the number of times that they're like, they really wanted you, but you don't have foreign value. So they're going with, you know, like... <laughs> They're going with the guy that kind of looks at you, but he's been in more movies, so sorry about that. Uh, no, so I auditioned for Community, and it was the Russos, and Dan was in there. All these executives were in there. We do the scene, like a couple of scenes, and I was like, oh, that went pretty well. Like, it's gone well. They laughed. I got good laughs, and I walked out, and then the Russos come out. They're like, all right, so you didn't get it. And I was like, I didn't get that because they were like, we... You know, they had told me, they were like, you know, we're rooting for you. And I was like, so they're like, so the some of the executives are not sure. And I'm like, okay, so what do we do? And he was like, all right, so we're going to bring you back in. We're going to get rid of all the executives and we're just going to film it. And then we're going to send that tape around to the executives. So I did that. So then a day goes by and then they're like, okay, they watched it and they're going to go with you. I'm like, ah. So they watched it and they're going to go with you? Not like... 
you got the role because you did a fucking amazing, like a shrug. Like, I don't think I could have digested that information very well. I think the Russos were like, fuck those guys. Don't worry about it. You already knew that you had somebody like that had your back. Yeah. And I was so naive at that point that I was just kind of like, oh, well, this is going to go for six years. And then it did. I mean, sure, it was a shit show to get us to the sixth year in the best way, but I was very naive. I was just like, oh, this is going to work. This is a thing that's great. And then I realized after now, you know, so many years, I'm like, oh, there is zero guarantees of anything. So true. Okay. Can I ask you, what was your first love like? Uh, you mean Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia? Sure. All right. All right. Yeah. I saw Star Wars in the theater in 1977. My dad took me to the United Artists Theater that does not exist. It was right by the Pink Elephant Car Wash near Denny Way um, in Seattle. Yes, and I remember. Yeah, and I've never been more in love than I was with Carrie Fisher. And I didn't realize it, and then I very briefly met her in like 2002 at a film premiere, a film that my friend was in, Proof of Life. My friend Pamela Reed, who is one of the greatest actors from Tacoma, Washington. Carrie Fisher was at this after party, and um, I was just like, oh, I didn't say it, but I was just like, you're the love of my life. I mean, it's like, I've always been in love with you. I'm always going to be in love with you. And like her fate, like, just, yeah, I was just like, when I still watched Star Wars, I'm just like, man, that was my first love. I wish you had told her that she was your only hope. And she'd be like, I never heard that before, dickless. Don't look to me for pickup lines, Joel. Yes, definitely. But wait, wait, wait. You didn't have like a third grade crush. Oh, yeah. My first girlfriend, I guess, is in fifth grade. And that was Tori Bowes. Yeah, Tori. I remember Tori. Mercer Island. Oh, really? Mercer, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Tori was cute. Same, same Monica's? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Pretty good at tetherball. <laughs> yeah, she was like a hopscotch queen, tetherball, the handball against the just the... Mine was Ryan Gervon. What's Ryan doing? What is Ryan he up to? Ryan Gervon was the fastest runner, and I would buy him ice cream every day for 25 cents. It was ice milk covered in, you know, sort of a plasticized chocolate dip that they served at the cafeteria. At the school? At Edmonds, uh, yeah. Yeah, Seaview Elementary in Edmonds, Washington. And Ryan Gervon could run like nobody else. I've never seen somebody run like Ryan Gervon. And any field day, he was the king. Yeah. So he was dating Michelle Lydon in third grade. and uh, Lydon? Fuck. But with enough ice cream, he ended up dating me at the same time. I was thrilled. I did not mind. Very, very progressive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, Ryan had Michelle, who was his number one. I was number two. I provided the ice cream and the, you know, cheerleading support for uh, fast running and then it fizzled, fizzled out in fourth grade. Who dumped who? Oh, who do you think, Joel? Jervon did it? Yeah, he was tired of the ice milk ice cream. Did he run away from you? Or he was like, this is where our relationship is right now. And then he took off like a road No, runner. no, no. He was strong. He was strong. He told me to my face. Did he stay with Michelle? Yeah, he did. He stayed with Michelle. And did she buy him ice cream? No, 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 no. 
Maybe he had a lactose thing. He needed the sugar for his energy, though, his energy levels. He did not ever take that into account. Every recess, I was like, Ryan, your glucose is dipping. Did you go to high school with him? No, I, he, he wouldn't have been uh, as romanticized in my head if I went to high school with him. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So what happened with Tori Bowes? I did not go to high school with her because I went to a Catholic grade school and a lot of the kids went Wait, to... Wait, did you go to Holy Main? No. Where'd you go? That's an all-girls school oh. in Tacoma. I would have loved to. No. Um, I So a lot of people went to like Seattle Prep and O'Day and um, different Catholic schools. And I went to Mercer Island High School, where many of us went to. But then I really lost touch with most of those kids, except for the ones that I went to high school with, of course. Um, but I saw Tori at my book signing. Oh, damn! Mercer Island. What? Yeah, she came to the book signing. Oh, man. And she looked great. So uh, I was very like, oh, wow, look at, look at, look at us. And we had like, uh, she was like, she was in line. I'm like, get out of line. We had like a 10 minute chat and she's friends with my brother. But I had not seen her since maybe sophomore year in high school at some sort of passing thing. How would you describe Mercer Island? What is your impression? Because as an outsider, it's uh, like a little, it's like the Beverly Hills or Brentwood mm-hmm. of Seattle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very affluent now, like crazy. And um, my parents paid a hundred grand for their house in 1980. Oh my God, they must so, be thrilled. Do they like tell 90, you that all the time? All the time. And uh, <laughs> no, but so it really became affluent, like super affluent in the 80s. And so I don't, I'm not trying to go like, yeah, but when we moved in, it was like, you know, rough. And it wasn't, it was great. My parents, when we moved to Seattle, they had, they were like, where should we move? Like they were very much considering uh, different parts of Seattle. So um, then we knew, yeah, you could definitely, because I played all sorts of sports in high school and, you know, we were considered like the rich school. Um, And uh, that was usually not very helpful on the field. What did you play? Did you play lacrosse? Are you going to say lacrosse? Lacrosse did not exist then. Ah. I mean, the sport existed. We didn't have any lacrosse team. I played one year of football, baseball, basketball, all four years. Do you miss any of that, Joel? Do you miss sports? Oh, yeah. I love, I mean, I watch them all the time. But I, like, I used to be in basketball leagues here in L.A., but I can't do it anymore because too many guys my age are breaking their knees in half they think they can still play the way they played when they were 20. They're super competitive. And I'm just like, I'm going to get my nose broken out here 
and it's not worth it. So I play a lot of football with my kids and I play a lot of basketball. I'll shoot baskets, but I did a one-on-one with this friend of mine. I'm like, here we go. Do not step on my foot or fall onto my foot because I'm going to cannot take three months off with a busted ankle. Is there a sport that you could make an argument for the best television viewing or the best in-person viewing for? And do you have a favorite Olympic event? Wow. All right. Well, I will say watching hockey live is way better than watching on TV, I think, because that puck is moving around so fast. Well, and everyone's crazy and it's cold. Yeah, I got to go to the gold medal game at the Vancouver Olympics for men's hockey, and it was possibly the most exciting sporting event I've ever been to in my life. It was one section of Americans, and you're in Vancouver, and a sea of red, and it's all the best NHL players from Canada on one team, and then all the American players, and they were like, couldn't believe they even got to that game, and they're dominating, and with a minute left... We tied the game. And I was just like, <gasps> uh, I, I was just like, uh, I was like, oh my gosh, we might win the gold medal against the death star of power in the NHL. And um, we didn't, but we probably would have been killed if we had won uh, the sta- in the stands. Because I, I was, yeah, so there's that. And then I really wasn't into ice skating. And we went to the women's gold medal ice skating match. Oh my God, that must have been thrilling. We had gone to a couple of different events, but the comparison between the top 10 ice skaters compared to the bottom 50 ice skaters, it's the difference between a junior high school person starting out playing basketball at Michael Jordan, because any country can send anyone, right? So if you're like, well, I, I, I skate, they're like, fine. Anyway, that said, the top two were the Japanese woman and a Korean woman And the Korean woman was favored. And they, both of them, they showed interviews where the Korean woman goes, I understand the pressure that's on me right now. My country is counting on me. My country needs a gold medal against Japan. I was just like, this girl is 14. And then the Japanese girl said the exact same things and was like, I need to bring home gold. I understand. And she goes, it's been worth the sacrifice. And you could just tell, I was just like, how the fuck? How are they going to stay on their skates and not just fall apart from nerves? And the Japanese woman comes out and just nails it. Wow. To the point where I have downloaded the music she skated to. Like that, it's a Rachmaninoff piece that is just, and she was wearing this black uh, outfit The lighting was dark and the music is this heavy Russian thing. I was like, good luck, Korea, because you're never going to top that. That was just, I mean, people were jumping up. And I have never been this way about ice skating, ever. And I am just like, yes, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And the Korean woman, when she walks out on the ice and it's all quiet, nothing has started. And you just hear the skates like ding, ding, ding. And you could keep that it was crowd was silent. And she does that thing where they get into that position and then they're like, they're ready to go. And that music came on and she fucking nailed it, blew it away and won. And she won. And I would be like, I don't know how this happened. She just won the gold medal. And it was like, like, there's no way you could come close to what the Japanese woman did. And, you know, like every it was 
these cliche, all these cliches. And um, I could not believe it. I, I don't know what you would compare. I've never seen anything like it. Joel, you're such a great storyteller. I was so fucking right there. Oh, I'll send you, I'll send you the okay, music. I it hope was, so. uh, this is another tiny little yeah, sports no, moment. Yeah, no, tell it, tell but, it. Because when I was on NBC, they did all the tennis. And I was like, I want free tickets to tennis. And so we went to the French Open in Roland Garros, which is right in Paris. And I was just like, I can't believe we're here. And it was when Nadal was, he and Federer were the greatest players on the planet. And, but Nadal was the king of clay. And Soderling, who's this other player, who at the time was also just like, we don't think he can beat him. These are professional athletes. Seeing professional tennis up close is so different than television because the speed with which these guys are moving and how hard they're hitting it every time, like Soderling would hit this thing. I'll be like, there's no way. And Nadal would send it back as a winner. And I remember Soderling, literally, he could not understand how someone was returning these winners. He's just like hitting the ball better that you could tell. And he would just be like, look at his racket, be like, what the fuck is happening? And Nadal just blew him away. And it wasn't that he played poorly. He just is at this other level of t- just like he just, uh, we just have a new level of tennis that you're not going to be able to. Play. Anyway, that was not as dramatic as the other two, but I remember just seeing the look on his face and I was just like, oh, fuck. No, but the ability to tap into the idea of being able to quickly process and have your body react, it's mind blowing to me. That's why I always get pissed at people that go like, well, he's just a big, dumb football player. And I'll be like, oh, no. College football is hard enough. And so is high school. But when you get to that NFL level and you see Russell Wilson making 500 decisions at once, it all happens at once. And it's so beautiful. And it's just uh, just kills me. Do you bristle at the idea of comedy? The idea that comedy is easy somehow. Yes, I not only bristle, I become angry. <laughs> Before I was on tele, like I got on to Almost Live in Seattle, which was a local sketch comedy show. Wait, Joel, you can't bring up Almost Live just casually like that. Well, so for those of you who don't know this, but Anna worked for Bill Staten, who used to make industrial videos. <laughs> I think, did I get you the video of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Last time? Thanks for calling Med Robin. Here at Red Robin, we always give good phone. Oh, that is so creepy. <laughs> like some dude was like, I got a good one. It's inherently so funny because you're like, all right, this is how we would like people to answer the phone. Hi, welcome to Red Robin. But then Anna played multiple characters and you're like, this is how you should not answer the phone. And you're like, hello. <laughs> I'm just like, so it's so wonderfully over the top. Like, Who's going to answer the phone like that? But it was so funny to see, like, how not to do it. But wait, I want to hear more of your Almost Live stories. Before I got into Almost Live, almost none of my friends, except for my friends who were actors, would take me seriously. They would be like, you're going to do what? Okay, why don't you go do your cute little your cute little skits? Why don't you go do your little thing where you jump around on stage and you make your little make ups I think that's a Northwest thing. A discouragement. People are awesome up there. I love that part of the country so fucking much. But there's a, like, keep you in check mentality. Yeah, like, let's not get too excited about anything, okay? Let's just calm down. Oh, so you're going to move to L.A. We'll see you in a few weeks. And then you know, when I got on TV, oh my gosh, 
everyone was just so impressed. And I was just like, I'm doing the same things. So that said, like my friend, he was getting his teeth cleaned and the dentist asked him what he did. And he's like, oh, I'm an actor. And he's like, well, isn't that just something you do? And I was just like, fuck you. And be like, that's like going, well, I don't know. You just pick up, I don't know, one of those water picks and, and you just start cleaning people's teeth because you just knew how to do it. Uh, you had a natural affinity to do that because you went into this career. I remember a guy saying to me on a plane, um, you know, asking what I did. And I said, I'm an actor. And uh, he said, OK, so what do you really do? Are you it was more of like a reflection upon him, because at the time I felt pretty secure in my career. Mm-hmm. But back to the idea of comedy. I don't know. Is it a silly topic of conversation? And does it reflect more on our inherent bitterness when we gripe about uh, the underappreciation of difficulty with comedy because you have to be inventive, you have to be self-deprecating, mm-hmm. you have to be willing to be viewed as a fucking ding-dong by your audience. And amongst other mental challenges with comedy, and I don't believe there is that much of a separation between comedy and drama. And that was very confusing when I first moved here. There was such a division between the two mentalities. It didn't make any sense. I have agreed with everything you've said so far. I liked how the Golden Globes, even though it seems to only be decided upon by like four or five people, but how they were like, who's the best comedy and the best drama? And so that's why with the Oscars, like there's very few comedies. And then what happens is like, well, you know, the last comedy was really you know, Annie Hall or whatever it was, which makes comedy a second-class citizen. Unless, you know, the like Robin Williams and Steve Martin and, and you know, like uh, Richard Pryor, they're exceptions. You know, like, you know, they're brilliant comedians who worked hard at their crafts and did great. But that's why there's so many brilliant comedies out there that never got their due as they should. Does it take time to appreciate legacy with comedy? Like, I, I don't know what, um, you know, Richard Pryor or... George Carlin's reputation was it during like their heyday. Now they're icons. Right. Were they then? I just don't know. I know exactly what you're saying because there were, and this is going to sound pretty insulting because you like you look at Steve Martin, not to Steve Martin because Steve Martin was like he was a superstar. You know, like he could fill the Rose Bowl with shows, right? And obviously his legacy has gone on to be like, he continues to be brilliant and continues to be thoughtful and funny and writes plays. And the guy is an auteur, right? And so, but then there are comics that were very popular and no one really talks about them, even though they were so successful. Like you think about like someone like Gallagher, who was a gigantic comic in the eighties, who smashed watermelons and did that. You don't really talk about it. That guy could sell out stadiums in every city in America. And so you don't hear about that as much uh, as, as you would. That was, I'm sorry, Gallagher. I don't mean to be a dick. Uh, going back to what you originally said was, yes, I don't think comedy gets enough due. I, I think it's gotten a lot better, I think. So in conclusion, the Oscars should recognize best comedy. And Every award show should recognize best comedy. Look, I mean, you have to go back to the the comedy tragedy masks. I mean, that's what ancient playwrights were talking about. So, you know, like it was just as important. Thank you. I'm Joel McHale. Okay, I have a few more important questions. What's a trait you dislike in others? Jeez. Uh, Being a dick. 
That's good. What's a trait you dislike in yourself? Being a dick. Uh, I put stuff off way too long. I wish I would just like, hey, read this thing. And I wish I would. Yeah. I don't. I don't either. I can't. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite rainy day movie? Well, we live in L.A., so there's not a lot of rainy days. But I don't know. My go-to, like, if it comes on, Back to the Future, if that's on, I'm going to watch the whole thing, and I know exactly what's going to happen. It's a good comfort movie. How about you? Um. What if it was like, oh, Requiem for a Dream? Oh, all right. Well, that's... Maybe like any of the Saw movies. Maybe. I love About a Boy. Like, I love, like, some of right, Prince's right. Bride. Like, I love, you know... I like a British romantic comedy and people are all nervous about love. I was going to say, if The Matrix comes on, I won't stop watching it. I'll just keep it on in the background just so it's comforting. Yep, a little laundry movie. On what occasion do you lie, Joel? Uh, movie premieres? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Oh, it was oh, great. Oh. <laughs> I'm talking in a very high voice. I love it. <laughs> I do like it when I do something and people are like, oh, that was funny. I'm like, are you saying you thought it was going to be awful? Oh, yeah. No, the better than I thought it would be compliment is... um... Rough. (laughs) Okay, wait. What haven't you taken the time to learn about? Oh, geez. Where do you start? I think every person is like, "Ah, I probably should have, well, like learned how to play an instrument, which I don't, or learned a foreign language, which I don't. So those are just bothersome. Well, I, you know, in all seriousness, like, you know, with the protest last year, you know, that was the first time, like, I was started reading books like, you know, White Fragility and, and Malcolm X's uh, biography and stuff like that, which I, you know, because um, systemic racism is alive and well. And um, if you're not doing anything, you're a part of the problem. So there you go. Yeah. It's a lot of self-reflection there. Yeah. Um, what or who has influenced your career the most? I guess... But there's so many uh, that, you know, have helped me that I've been inspired by, uh, I guess. But I would say early on when I started watching Monty Python, the absurdity kind of unlocked a, hey, it's okay to be super weird and don't just do anything standard. And John Cleese looks like my dad. And uh, (laughs) so I was like, hey, there's a guy that looks like my dad. And that guy's a nut. And my dad's really funny. Um, But I think seeing like the Holy Grail and the, the episodes, I think the absurdity really allowed me to go, oh, you don't have to just do stuff a certain way. You can just like be crazy. It's great. Completely. To this day, I'm very enamored by a lot of British programming and British, like just like the idea of it. I mean, we and everyone's like British, British television's better. I'm like, no, no, no. We just didn't get the crap over in America. They weeded it out. They just gave us the good stuff. I remember I was shooting a movie show called Fuck Off, I'm a Ginger. Wow. Yeah. Hey, see, you, we can just go like, see, British programming, just as crappy. <laughs> we, we, we used to watch the show called Drunk Brits Abroad. That sounds really good. Yeah, just following these assholes. <laughs> just like, hi, hi, you, what's your name? And they're like some Italian white. Like, I go, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's Great. reassuring to Americans, though. It is. I'm like, oh. We're not the worst. We're just as bad. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book or author? Okay. Right now it's Joe Abercrombie. Joe Abercrombie, right? Okay. That's who I like. I don't know who that is. He writes fantasy novels and I think he's as good as Tolkien. Can you tell me how I get involved in this person? The first book I think is called The Blade Itself. The Blade? 
itself. itself. All right. But I just read a really good book called Pill City, which is a tr very true story. And it is so wild. And you'll read it going like, why don't I know about this? It's about when Freddie Gray was killed or died from his injuries in 2015. Um, and then there are all those riots took place in Baltimore. These two teenagers in this gang, they robbed 52 pharmacies over those three days, four days, stole $100 million worth of opiates. Wow. And the rest of the story just gets wilder and wilder. Okay, Pill City. Yeah, Pill City's great. Okay. Really good. What is your greatest extravagance? Wine. <laughs> I buy too much of it and I drink too much of it and I love it. And uh, I just have to like make sure I exercise every day because I, I collect it and it's it's like, oh, I could really have used that money to buy like a car or something. Someday when this is all over, can my fiance and I come over and drink some of your wine with you and your Yes. Wife? Okay. Thanks. Come on over. Thanks, Joel. I have to get rid of it. <laughs> oh, you can also go to the storage space that I have full of it. <laughs> In one word, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, jeez. I know. It's the worst one. Because nobody can answer that for themselves. If I were to be asked this question, I wish someone would pop in and say, oh, she's remarkable. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone's going to remember, but I'll say like, uh, oh, he was a nice person. <laughs> It's gone a long way in my life, as we already talked about. We're like, just being nice and being nice back on some sort of work situation is worth its weight in gold. Because you spend so much time, you know, working a lot of the time. Just like, you were cool to people. I mean, like, Ted Danson, look at him. Look, right? It's pretty much well known that he's one of the nicest people in the business. And that's quite a wonderful reputation. I love that. Okay, I know you have to go. God bless you. Okay, Joel, I adore you. Thank you so much. And please send the, the, I don't know what kind of animal you sacrifice and drink its blood to look as young as you do, but uh, please send it some <laughs> my way. I'll trade you wine for it. You got it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. everyone, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman is back on the show. Scott is the author of Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, and his work has appeared in The Atlantic, Scientific American, Psychology Today, and Harvard Business Review. For more on Scott and our other experts, you can find links on our website, unqualified.com. 
Hey, how's it going, Anna? Hey, Scott. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're going to call Adam. Hello? Hey, Adam. Hey, how's it going? Oh, great. Hey, um, thank you so much for talking with us. I am here with Scott Barry Kaufman. He hosts the Psychology Podcast, and he's a professor at Columbia University. All kinds of crazy credentials. <laughs> hey, Adam. How's it going? Hey, Adam, will you tell us what's going on? Yeah, the last year has been pretty crazy in my life, uh, aside from the pandemic. I got laid off from my job last summer, and then my mom got sick. She passed away in December. God, I am so sorry, Adam. And then, uh, obviously, the pandemic started in the new year. And then my relationship sort of ended (laughs) about a month into the pandemic. So I've just sort of been like, living this weird sort of existence for the last, you know, year and a bit. I'm still living with my ex, which is like the weird part, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Adam, I'm like reading your email. I'm like, I don't know why Adam's not talking about the most crucial part. (laughs) (laughs) Can I read a few sentences from your email, if you don't mind? For sure. Yeah. You wrote, my life has completely changed over the last year, pre-pandemic, major life changes, including losing my full-time job in 2019, losing my mom to cancer in December, and my 10-year relationship ending a month into the pandemic, although we are still living together due to financial situations, and we have a dog who I'd like to not leave. Adam, what a fucking shit show you've had. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. There's lots of people going through way worse. It's just, this is all, like in my my one year of like real drama but yeah I mean the relationship I think I think we both sort of knew it was coming but didn't really want to admit it and then um, when the pandemic started we sort of had more time to talk about things and um, yeah just financially um, we've had to continue living together which has been fine but it is a little bit awkward obviously you know just Being together, but not being together. Adam, did you end the relationship? Well, we ended it together. He and I talked and just said that we knew that things were not great being in that like romantic aspect of the relationship. It feels like you, if my gut is right, that it was either very mutual or you were the one who initiated. I think I've been feeling that way for a while. It's not anything that like either of us did because we get along really well, but... There was no romantic side of anything anymore. And we sort of just uh, realized that, like, we've become really good friends over the last 10 years. (laughs) We're sort of moved into that side of our relationship, I guess. Wow. So do you mind my asking, Adam, are you in more of a financial bind than your partner or is it vice versa? Me mostly because um, currently, like, just with job situation, like, I'm only working a little bit at the moment. It's not full time. So it's harder for me to, I guess, to make a decision to move out and kind of get my own place and do my own thing. But I also have a little bit of money from after my mom passed away. So I could move out, I suppose. But I, you know, without a full time income, it's a harder decision to make. I think you should move. Yeah. Adam, I do. I do. I'm not this abrupt normally. (laughs) But I do because I think If you guys are going to be together again, if that ever happens, if that's something that either of you want, it's important that there might be like a restart. Mm -hmm. Scott, am I off? Why can't you simultaneously look for full-time jobs while you're still living with him? I definitely have been. It's just before the pandemic started and 
I guess in between December and the pandemic, I decided that I was going to maybe make a career change mm. and look into some other stuff. And then obviously that's become more difficult because of the pandemic and people not maybe hiring as much or those jobs not being around. And I obviously I sit at the computer all the time and apply for jobs and stuff. And it's just been a little bit difficult to actually find something and move on, I guess. May I ask what field? I work in the media. Like uh, I work in radio, but I've been doing that for almost 20 years. Hey, Adam, how do you feel on a daily basis the effect of your mom passing? I feel like that's something that I probably haven't dealt with very well yet. And I... Uh, maybe it's because, you know, that happened mid-December and then a couple months later, the world shut down. So I've had like other things to sort of think about. So yeah, I don't know if I've actually fully dealt with the loss of my mom. I don't know if that's something that I've like kind of come to terms with, I suppose. I know it's a journey that we all have ahead of us and I'm sorry you had to go through it sooner rather than later. Yeah. Do you both feel right now that you are in this, like, let's say you're in the kitchen and he comes through. Is there any touching? Is there like, did you do the dishes? Like, wh what is sort of the communication? What degree of awkwardness or resentment coming from either side? Like, I think maybe it's more my awkwardness, like not being awkward, like around him because we've lived together for 10 years. So, it, you know, that's not the awkward part. I think it's just the awkward part of living with someone who I was with and I'm not anymore. And part of me thinks that I guess trying to decide whether or not to move on and do something different in my life, just in general, sort of came because of the fact that I did lose my mom. And it's like one of those things where I just sort of saw that moment of like, well, we, we don't have all the time in the world. So maybe it's time to like find a new path, I guess. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but... Adam, it totally does. You were going through like a mortality check. Like, what do I want to accomplish out of life? Because yeah. there's that slap in the face recognition that mm. it's short. For me, I'm I'm not like a t the type of person who just wants to like, you know, sleep around and that's never been my thing. But I don't, I don't know. There's, maybe there's... Because this relationship didn't work out the way I thought maybe it would. I mean, we were young. We were, you know, 10 years younger when we first met and we've grown a lot. We both sort of want different things, I think, now. So the awkwardness for me is more that it's not that I don't love him as a person and as a friend, but I don't know if, like, even if we wanted to still be friends afterwards, which I know we will be, it doesn't allow me to move on and experience life by myself. Do you think that your ex has uh, stronger feelings towards you or a stronger motivation to be in a relationship with you than you do? Um, I think he's totally cool with like us just living together and being friends. Like I, I don't feel like he feels the same way I do, but I'm terrible at talking about my feelings, but here I am talking to two strangers <laughs> about it. So, so Adam, if your ex has an emotional attachment to you and you feel a little bit anxious about finance and a dog and just living a decade. That is fucking scary to think about change, but I would encourage it, Adam. I think that you wrote us for a reason because I think that you maybe want to, don't you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I want to, but then there's the worry comes of like, okay, so yeah, I, I could move out financially. I'm able to and for, you know, a short period of time. But at the same time, like if a job doesn't happen at some point in the next, you know, couple of months, then that's when I start to like freak myself out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense because it's fucking tough right now. And in a normal world, it would be easier because the job market would be more open. Yeah. Adam, let me offer some thoughts. Hopefully it can offer you some comfort. You know, in our field um, of psychology, we we talk about there's a constant tension between security and growth, you know, and and sometimes under certain conditions, we cling towards safety. And it makes complete sense that during COVID, during a global pandemic, so much uncertainty that you would be clinging to safety right now, maybe even more so than than before. And also concerning all the, the traumas you've gone through recently. But there's also a field that I really recommend you look into called post-traumatic growth. Okay. And this field of post-traumatic growth is, is really trying to understand, well, what can you do in your life to, to really find meaning in these horrible things that have happened to you and reprioritize your life and, and change all of your, uh, your goal hierarchy, as they call it? You know, what means the most to you in life? This is a good time for you to really reflect on that, I think, and to think about how you want to grow in the directions of the things that, that mean the most to you in your life right now. And, and I think both Ad and I are feeling in our, in our gut here that, you know, it's, you're going to have some decision, make some change, something to move you in, out of uh, your comfort zone, uh, even even a little bit in the direction that is most meaningful to you so you can grow. I think you don't have to wait till a pandemic is over. You don't have to wait till you have a full-time job for you to move in the direction of growth. So I think we're both encouraging that. Adam, oftentimes we get these amazing letters from people like you that it almost seems like they're answering their own question or they want confirmation. Right. And you definitely fit into the category, in my opinion, that you want support for the idea of change, which is terrifying. Change is so fucking scary. Oh, my God. I've (laughs) been through two divorces. And, you know, it's like you think things are going one way and then there's a big pivot and it's thrilling and scary and head spinning. But I get that sense from your letter, Adam, that you are ready for a change that involves growth outside of this relationship, which might really mean moving out. Are you close enough to your ex to explain these things? Or do you think that he would get hurt if you said, like, I need a bit of change and I need a bit of space. You know how much money I have. I can afford it for this long. Like, what do you think? Are you guys in that kind of space at all? Yeah, we always talk like during our relationship, like, you know, we always said to each other, like, we have to be open and honest. And, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do. And I think for me right now, it's a little bit harder to be honest just because I don't want to start a fight. <laughs> and um, Wait, or, Adam, that, that's, this is interesting. Wait, do you guys still fight? No, we don't fight. Like, we have little arguments. That's the thing is that it feels like, we're still in a relationship even though we're not mm. because we're together with no benefits right but it's that sort of thing right so I, I because i'm the type of person who never wants to like cause uh any sort of friction i don't always share my my thoughts or my feelings and then it makes it worse for me then i get upset like i'll blow up later because you know it's all of these things feelings are stuck inside me yeah 
what I'm trying to get at, Adam, I think is, um, is your partner more in love with you than you are with him? Um, maybe, I, I guess if I was like to have to give you an answer, I would probably say yes, but like he's more comfortable being like the, in the current situation, he's like totally fine with it. And he still talks about like, Oh, we should do this or we should do that. And it's like, yeah, like we can do things, but at the same time, like I, there's part of me that wants to just be like, well, you know, I'm trying to separate, I guess I'm trying to separate myself from the relationship, but still be friends by, and so when I say things, I'm like, yeah, like you can totally go and do that or you can do this. But then he always reverts it back to being us. I just wonder, is there a way, I wonder how receptive your roommate would be <laughs> to you saying, I think that this is an important time for me to spend like three months on my own. Would you mind, because you're an important part of my life, you'll always be a part of my life. I'm not quite sure where I'm at dealing with my mom, dealing with all of this. Can I ask you for the generosity of still having you in my life? Mm-hmm. Does that sound like something that you could do or would want to? Yeah, I mean, he's very important to me, like always will be. There's no doubt about it. And I think he'd be receptive to whatever feelings I have. But it's that, you know, it's the, what we talked about, the uncertainty of it. This is like my safety right here, like being where I am. But I think he would be open to hearing I don't know if he would be super happy if I moved out or if I did my own thing but I think he would be receptive to like talking about it yeah Adam I just had another thought occur to me um because you haven't been alone for a decade and it's man it can be tough it's like something that you crave of course but then when it happens like you know day seven you find yourself not (laughs) Like knowing what, especially during this time when we are really on top of each other, I find mm-hmm. myself having a hard time being alone mm-hmm. in a way that mm-hmm. kind of takes me by surprise a little bit because I, I felt mm-hmm. like I was always a bit of a solitary person. I had a dream of living in the Yukon. <laughs> I really did. As a little girl, it was very odd. Doesn't sound awful. It doesn't sound awful. But um, <laughs> is there anywhere you can go just to get away and, and clear your head? Like, would that kind of idea appeal to you so you could use this time in a different way that you hadn't really thought of before? Yeah, I mean, I did get away for a couple of days a few months ago just to just to get away. But I think I tried to pack too much into doing stuff in a couple of days, which I didn't need to do, which I should have just, like, relaxed. So maybe something like that would help, like, just getting away. And even if just went somewhere for a week completely just anywhere even close by right oh totally i I think like at least you'll be able to gauge there'll be moments where you'll have a at least if you're me adam (laughs) (laughs) moments of like kind of independent uh, euphoria like a what could happen and then moments of like fuck i'm in a shitty hotel room and i really miss i really miss like having somebody curled up next to me yeah but you might be able to gauge sort of how comfortable you are with it right it's not like you're moving into a new apartment where you're setting up a whole new lifestyle for yourself this is like a temporary mental check Mm -hmm. scott what do you think i like that idea a lot i feel like you don't well i i I, if i had like let's say you're one of my clients and i had a longer um, amount of time to talk with you i'd really want to dive into the specific areas of life 
that you most want to grow in right now? You know, like with the media, even though you're not finding a full-time job, what can you do to, can you volunteer for an organization? I'm not 100% convinced that just getting out of um, your current living situation is going to be what you need as much as feeling like you're growing in other areas of your life so that you don't feel like you need this as the security blanket. Does that make sense? Right. That makes a lot of sense to me too. Yeah, just I was just thinking about asking like if a job happened or something like on that side of things changed for me, would my mentality or my feelings about where I'm living with that change? Would it become easier? Yes, I think so. Adam, I think any lifestyle change will be very impactful in terms of your your reflection on your relationship right now for positive or for negative. I think that's quite right. I mean, I am pretty convinced that a lot of these concerns you're having, if your attentional focus is somewhere else towards a more growth-oriented direction, I'm pretty convinced that a lot of these concerns won't even become concerns for anymore. And you'll even be like, oh, you know what? Of course I'm moving. Something will be more clear to you. Mm-hmm. You know, practice self-compassion as well right now. I'm like really big into that, you know, self-compassion <laughs> meditations. But be kind to yourself during this time and realize that during this pandemic and and all this uncertainty and the traumas, think of all the things you've gone through, very natural to want to cling to a safety solution. But I think ultimately, you know, we're both encouraging you here to find the areas of your life that are most going to lead to uh, growth and lead to pride and enjoyment in your your work, your job, your life. You know, you want to feel like you're future-oriented thinking right now. We want to give you kind of a hopeful mindset versus a security-oriented mindset. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally does. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just been a lot. I don't know if I ever deal with things the way I should do properly, but um, so I feel like all of this together at one time has just been, I haven't been able to like kind of take each thing and just sort of deal with it. Scott, what do you think about when a traumatic event happens and then a snowballing effect of change? Like when one of your pillars in your life has been like rocked, then do you start to irrationally or very rationally examine the other stable factions in your life? Psychologists call it a psychologically seismic earthquake is what happened to you. And what happens with any earthquakes is you have to rebuild. There has to be an acceptance part of this where you realize, well, things are cracked. You know, this happened. My expectations, things were going along and I was thinking, oh, well, this is the way life is. And then this psychological earthquake happened and you're like, wow, things really can change that quickly. But you don't only have to rebuild, but what emerges from this can be something really growth-oriented. I mean, there can be a, a real prioritization of what's important to you. I mean, have you reflected during this time about um, the things that, that give you the most meaning in your life and maybe things you took for granted before this stuff happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I took for granted, like, you know, having family around. Like, we moved to a new city a few years ago, so I'm not around my family right now. Like, I can't go home and see them because we can't, you know, we can't see each other, right? So, um, that I sort of maybe took for granted and even, even work, uh, I took for granted cause I, I had a good job, uh, I was doing well in what I was doing. And I mean, we, we all complain about our jobs sometimes. And I think maybe I, I complained a little bit too much and took it for granted. And then when it was gone, it, you know, I didn't expect to not be able to get back to doing what I was doing you know, not like over a year later, I didn't think I'd be not doing that again. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I'm trying to reflect on myself and what I want out of my life now. Hey, Adam, 
This is only a question maybe for you to think about if you feel like it from the very unqualified person on this call. But I wonder how your partner would describe your breakup. I don't know. I don't know if he would say something like, you know, once Adam's mom died, things shifted or the pandemic or like how he is framing things. And it might not be important at all. But remember how I was like, oh, Adam, yeah, you should move out. I'm kind of backing away a little bit from that right now. Okay. I don't know how much intense sort of isolation you are ready to have. And I say that truly, Adam, as a person who craves it and romanticizes it, but then is also like, you know, I'm not actually moving to the Yukon. (laughs) Right. I do wonder if during this time, maybe a bit of a solid foundation and familiarity is what you need. Can I ask you, like, would you enjoy a road trip with your partner, your ex? Yeah, I mean, we get along so well that, like, we don't really fight. We don't, like, we do get along and we we could drive together, no problem. But yeah, you just I, don't know if you want to spend that much time with him. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we're, we're together. I mean, he works full yeah. time now and, like, luckily is, is able to work and be out of the apartment and stuff and I'm I've basically been at home for seven months other than like the few days that I do work in the week and I think maybe that's sort of like getting to me a bit also maybe it's that completely right like I obviously that's like a we're all sort of we're all in that same sort of boat I suppose but hey Adam I did have another question if you don't mind my interrupting you how were you feeling about the relationship before your mom passed I think the relationship was was okay. Yeah. But we also, like I mentioned, we moved from one city to another, and I've never been fully happy living in the current city we're in. Mm. But I think it's because I left a job that I really loved, and then oh. came to one that you know wasn't as great in terms of like the people I was working with. And then, yeah, just not being like fully, never really being fully happy living where we're living now. So I don't know if like, if I had like resentment, not maybe not towards him, but just in being taken away from like something that I really, that makes sense. It makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even though it's not your partner's fault, you moved by your own volition, uh, mm-hmm. to have a relationship with your partner. But yeah, was, of course, like going from a community that you had that you felt validated in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would, I'm human. If I were you, Adam, I would be like, I'm mad and I can't <laughs> even blame anybody. Right. Yeah. There's no easy answer here, but I think that it's important to recognize that you don't need to move out to move on. And there are a lot of things you can do right now to expand your life and move your your head in a more future-oriented direction and then won't be such a constant reminder. Like, I feel like this living environment right now is this constant sense of, like, a a feeling of, like, you're stuck in some way. But I think that feeling uh, can be transcended even without moving out um, if you can open up your life in other ways. Okay. You know? Yeah. I, I I describe my life right now as, like, the movie Groundhog Day. Yeah, basically, (laughs) because it's the same sort of thing all the time, right? Like, it's just my days are the same. Sure. What you asked earlier about whether or not I feel like I could, like, express that. And I guess I know I can. 
I know I could be like, Hey, we need to have a talk. And like, I just want to tell you how I'm feeling because we're good like that. But at the same time, like I get so like, I don't want to upset you or upset anyone by telling you how I'm truly feeling. But at the same time, I know that I have to like take care of myself right now and be Mm. the best for me, which makes it really hard to like, want to be honest and open about how I'm feeling because I don't want to hurt anybody else. Yeah, but I think that it's not right time to be a little bit uh, selfish. We call it healthy selfishness is what we call it. Yeah. I like that. You're allowed to have a little healthy selfishness. Go on my website. You can take the healthy selfishness scale for free and uh, you can assess where you are. You might need to up your up your number on that one okay (laughs) scott i feel like i would like cross into unhealthy selfishness (laughs) i know i would narcissism (laughs) probably yeah (laughs) scott is there any practical advice we and, and by we i mean you can give to adam should he try to take some time alone I would give you homework assignment of an exercise to really reflect and see, first of all, how does it feel different being, you know, really meditate on that feeling um, and see how and write down, have a journal, write down, how does that feel different having that autonomy, that freedom? Is it scary? Can you handle it, you know, right now? Or are you, are you at a place in your life where you can handle it? A lot of questions. It'd, it'd be a good experiment. I'm totally with you, Anna. And I think, but we need to add on some extra reflective activities there. And also, and if you feel like, you know what, I can do this, you know, I can, I can get used to this. I can adjust to this. Um, also think about the, the different priorities. Are you thinking more clearly or differently about the things that matter most in your life when you're away from that house? You know, so a really good opportunity for reflection here. Adam, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story because please know that you are not alone at all. And I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I did want to say, like, thank you for the stuff that you do on on your podcast. I listen every week and all of the people you have on, there's always something I take away from it. So thank you. Adam, that kind of makes me want to cry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but Adam, um, I can't thank you enough. You're an amazing person. Can I leave you with a resource as well? Is that okay? Yeah, for sure. First of all, I would recommend that you open up your uh, shared vulnerability with uh, the person you're living with. So definitely, like you've opened up to us, it's a really beautiful side of yourself and you shouldn't be ashamed of that. Uh, but also, I want to leave you with the resource of James Pennebaker's work on expressive writing. I mean, there is a, a literature on for people who are dealing with trauma and want to grow from it. There's a good scientific foundation there that just even 15, 20 minutes of journaling a day of just cognitively like writing down the emotions that you're feeling and trying to find meaning in your traumas and your past experiences can really help you move forward. I advocate a short road trip, uh, some time where you can, I find it kind of meditative to just stare at the freeways and listening to things and maybe space and expansion just on that small level maybe can give you a pause or reflection on, on yeah. sort of the things that you want for sure. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. We're rooting for you, man. Hey, Adam, thank you, truly. Well, thank you. I appreciate both of you and your time today. That's, it's been great. All the best to you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Scott, thanks again for doing this. You're amazing. Oh, my pleasure. It was so much fun. So much fun. Bye. 